I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, on Thursday, July 6th, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen traveled to China to meet with Xi Jinping's new top economic advisors. One of Yellen's top goals was to understand what is happening in the Chinese economy, which has rebounded slower than expected this year after China lifted nearly three years of stringent pandemic measures. Yellen returned to Washington on Sunday with no announcements of breakthroughs or agreements between the United States and China, but agreed to keep open a line of communication. Here to discuss Treasury Secretary Yellen's recent visit to China, I'm really pleased to welcome my two guests, Michael Falkender, America First Policy Institute's Chief Economist, and Steve Yates, America First Policy Institute Senior Fellow and Chair of China Policy Institute, and I have to say, one of my guides many years ago when we went to China, and he kept trying to explain to me what was going on. It was one of the great educations of my life. Michael and Steve, thank you both for joining me on Newt's World. Great to be with you. Thank you. I want you to free associate for a second and tell me what was your reaction to what you saw about Yellen in China. Steve, I'm going to start with you. There are two big takeaways to me that I think are the signals that the Chinese audience and our allies will see. Number one was the visual of the secretary's three-time bow toward a premier This is something that is not in communist culture, definitely not something that's in the protocol handbook. It seemed to be almost instinctive and compulsive. But what it was, was a distinct body language signal of submission and obedience. And that is, I think, the exact opposite message we should be sending to a nation that has poisoned us with COVID and is poisoning us with fentanyl and go down the list of other kinds of things. And Americans should bow to no one, given the contribution we've made to their livelihoods 
No country has done more for the Chinese people in the history of all of China than has the United States of America. So that was the big first one. The second one was where she said, we are de-risking and we are going to rebalance our relations with China, but we're not decoupling because that would be disastrous for both of our countries. And I just think that's historically flawed, but it's also not what a lot of our colleagues and friends are calling for. Our friend Bob Lighthizer has a new book that outlines strategic decoupling, which begins with pharmaceuticals and other kind of strategic areas that absolutely we should be decoupling from our dependence on China. But this old saw of pulling up these black and white canards, I mean, you lived through this, Mr. Speaker, in the 1990s when people are trying to tell you U.S.-China relations were all black or all white. It's just not the way the world is. But those are the two things, the bow and that decoupling is potentially disastrous or impossible. I just thought those were both losers for the United States. Michael, what was your reaction? I had very similar reaction to Stephen that the bow is the thing that this trip is going to be most remembered for. The notion that we would send the Treasury Secretary over and immediately this act of weakness to her peer and giving the suggestion that we are somewhat, as Steve said, subservient to the Chinese when in fact they need us just as much as we need them when it comes to our economic relationship. The second thing is that there was no seeming agenda for this meeting, which is why coming out of it with nothing other than we're going to continue talking seems striking to me. You know, as opposed to, I served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury during the Trump administration and Secretary Mnuchin went over there with a very clear agenda that we were going to completely refocus the trading relationship and that we were going to address things like intellectual property theft, currency manipulation, and forced technology transfers. And we came up with a robust phase one trade agreement. And I saw nothing from the reporting that came out of Secretary Yellen's visit to chastise the Chinese for their flagrant violations of that agreement. Instead, it seemed to be that we're going to continue allowing you to engage in some of the behavior that we find reprehensible. And we are in no way preparing ourselves for the potential of China invading Taiwan and the economic implications it's going to have when the most advanced semiconductors in the world are all of a sudden controlled by the Chinese. They sent a message before she even went that they were going to crack down on critical mineral exports. And what that tells me is that if and when they do invade Taiwan, they are going to hold us hostage on semiconductors. And we are in no way prepared for that. And Secretary Yellen did nothing to dissuade the Chinese from engaging in that kind of action. Somebody challenged me earlier today about saying that the Biden administration had been soft on China and they were citing various things that we'd done, various bills that have been passed, et cetera. How would you two describe or explain what it means to say that this administration is weak in its approach to China? Well, I have some sympathy for people trying to get a clear signal on what the Biden administration's policies are, because the president, with all of the wonderful gifts on display these days, he can say anything at any given time. And some of the things he says are quite tough. The problem is that there's kind of a cleanup on aisle nine every time where a senior administration official tries to reinterpret into English what the president supposedly meant. And every single time the correction goes in the direction of engagement, weakness and kind of back to the warm bath of conventional thinking. 
on China. And that's kind of the rhetoric that was littered throughout Secretary Yellen's visit. All of this talk about there's enough room in the world for two great nations. We don't see this through the lens of strategic competition. I mean, these are old slogans that are used to kind of reframe things to ignore say, a genocide against the Uyghurs, to ignore the threats against Taiwan that Mike was talking about. And so every time there is something tough, for instance, the president has said, we will defend Taiwan if attacked by China. And every single time, like four or five times, a senior White House official has said, well, no, we're not changing policy and we support the status quo. And so the mixed messages is one area of weakness, but the ardent suitor image of having the national security advisor, the secretary of state, the secretary of treasury, allegedly the climate czar, John Kerry, on the way soon, all in pursuit of President Biden having a meeting with Xi Jinping on the margins of APEC or the margins of other kinds of gatherings. It's all America going to China to ask, none of China taking accountability or kind of having an equal partnership in any of this. Secretary of State Blinken was just there. Why do you think they pushed the meeting with Secretary of Treasury Yellen so quickly after Blinken was there? Well, there's a long history of secretaries of the Treasury. Mnuchin might have been an exception to this in the sense of the negotiator for the senior economic dialogues and the strategic economic dialogues that we've had with China from the Bush years all the way up to the present. Usually it's the Secretary of the Treasury that carries somewhat the Wall Street and Chamber of Commerce talking points. The Trump administration was a kind of rest stop in that trajectory, but Yellen right now is giving the exact same talking points that the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce would have given in 1996, 2006, or 2016. And so I think that's why they wanted it to go quickly, and they knew the Chinese would say yes to her. Michael, from your background, your experience with in the Department of the Treasury. What's our normal pattern dealing with the Chinese dictatorship? I think Steve is correct that traditionally it has been to facilitate ongoing trade, whether it was the Bush administration, whether it was the Clinton or the Obama administration, it was a view that opening up China, bringing them into the West would somehow change their behavior. And I must admit, I've said in a couple of other audiences that I don't begrudge the Clinton or the Bushes of taking a chance on bringing them into the Western world and seeing if it would change behavior. What I do fault the Biden administration for is that it's finally time we admit that that failed. The Chinese are not going to alter their behavior and particularly activities of Xi Jinping to demonstrate that he is going to be dictator for life. He wants to rule over Asia and that he is going to regress when it comes to some of the economic changes that they had implemented. So it's time for us to take seriously the Chinese position that they are looking to be the dominant power, both militarily and economically in Asia. And we therefore need to double down on the activities that Secretary Mnuchin led during the Trump administration to hold the Chinese accountable. That means we need to reform the WTO, if not remove China from participation in the WTO. We need to leverage trading sanctions in order to change behavior and to encourage the American economy, particularly in national security and healthcare related sectors, disengage from our dependence upon their supply chains. And so while I see Secretary Yellen's trip as a return to what had occurred under previous administrations, 
I think that because China has so changed their behavior in the past couple of years, the reversion to that historical behavior is particularly damaging today. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. It strikes me that Xi Jinping is a different phenomena than anybody we've seen since Mao. Somebody told me that at the very moment that Yellen is arriving in Beijing, the Chinese communists are picking a fight in the Philippines. 
Are either of you read into that? Because apparently they deliberately went out of their way to try to occupy some islands that are claimed by the Philippines that involves a great deal of, I think, natural gas and oil. It's almost like they're deliberately poking, sometimes around Taiwan, sometimes around the South China Sea, floating a spy balloon over the U.S. There's just a constant process of trying to acculturate us to accept their aggressiveness. You're right. We've had a couple of breaks with past behavior. I do agree completely that Xi Jinping is a different kind of top communist. It's not that the other ones were angels or saints. They were much more careful about what they were doing, and they didn't want to show the dirty laundry out in public. Xi Jinping seems to have no bashfulness about showing his fangs. And when we had big summitry, both sides would kind of take care not to conduct military exercises or do anything that would hurt the spirit of the gathering, at least briefly, while the two sides were getting together. And every single time there is an engagement with a top American leader now, China's doing something provocative. And I don't think it's by accident. I think that they're doing it knowing they can do it with impunity. And it makes them look bold and it makes us look weak. The thing I think that confuses some people or concerns some people is obviously we don't want a fight. We're not looking to have a war or a conflict with China. My goodness, we've invested trillions of dollars and tied our future to them in significant ways. That's not what you do with an enemy. But the problem is, in return, they still see us the way they see us. They engage in this provocative behavior. So yes, the adventurism in Southeast Asia goes on unabated. The significant uptick in air and sea sorties around Taiwan, the constant cyber bombardment of Taiwan and our allies and our military in the Pacific is always ongoing. And they don't stop from doing military drills or other kinds of things while they are meeting with American officials. And it wasn't even that long ago that they were stomping on the people of Hong Kong and they still have political prisoners there. And we're still meeting. And I don't think Janet Yellen said, hey, should the former founder and publisher of the Apple Daily in Hong Kong be released from political prison in Hong Kong and restore Hong Kong to an international financial hub? I think that's in the rearview mirror for this administration. And the Chinese know that. Michael, what's your take? You know, the thing I fear the most is that for the Biden administration, China is kind of their equivalent of Iran from the Obama administration. More than anything else, it seemed like Barack Obama wanted his international legacy to be a deal with Iran. And I view many of the same people doing many of the same things to try to get an accommodation for China. The second thing I see is that the priority of this administration seems to be climate more than anything else. And I just think that that's foolish because the notion that Xi Jinping is going to allow hundreds of millions of his people to continue languishing in poverty because he's concerned about global warming conditions is just false. The Chinese have been very clear that they are not going to negotiate on reducing their carbon emissions. The fact that they're opening a coal-fired power plant approximately one per week somewhere in their country demonstrates that they're not at all interested in pulling back on their carbon footprint. And yet, the most important priority seemingly of the Biden administration is to lay the groundwork for former Secretary Kerry to go over and come to some kind of climate accord. Our willingness to give up on national security issues, on trading security, all chasing this 
panacea of a grand bargain on global warming, again, just strikes me of the same fantasticalism that the Obama administration suffered from in Iran. Frankly, anytime John Kerry goes anywhere, I worry. He may be the most deluded person ever to serve as Secretary of State, which is not a small statement, but I've known John a long time. And in the time I've known him, he's never once been in touch with the planet. And it's amazing to me how he retains substantial political clout, despite clearly being out of touch with the world. It's kind of remarkable. But he's keeping contact with the person that Bob Gates said hadn't made a correct foreign policy decision in 50 years. So those two go well together. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it that way, that maybe there's a perfect marriage between being totally out of touch with reality and just being wrong, which seemed to be the way the two of them operate. You know, you'd mentioned earlier, and I think at the same time Yellen was in Beijing, Xi Jinping was addressing the Eastern Command and basically exhorting them to be ready to invade Taiwan whenever necessary. How seriously do you two take the threat to actually militarily occupy Taiwan? We've lived with this our whole lives. It has never been zero. And thankfully to today, it has not been 100%. It's sort of in the spirit of former Secretary Rumsfeld. This is just not something we get to know. We have to plan around the capabilities that are definitely there. No one can impose their rationality onto how Xi Jinping thinks. I don't believe our intelligence community knows. I am certain our diplomatic community doesn't know. I am certain our president doesn't know what Xi Jinping really has planned. And perhaps most of the Chinese people don't know. But what we do see and we can verify is they are indoctrinating their children from kindergarten all the way to adulthood to speak in war tones about this nationalistic claim of Taiwan. The evil United States has been injuring the spirit of China. So they've begun the battle preparation of the information space in a very serious way. They began decoupling their financial institutions. They started looking through tech with the attack on Alibaba and Jack Ma. They've gone through education and they're starting to find ways to prepare in advance in case the United States found a bag of sanctions we wanted to use if they got too aggressive with Taiwan, learning from the Russia-Ukraine example. So I think that they are getting fully prepared. What that puts them in the position of is a great luxury. They don't have to invade to have almost the same crippling impact. If they can create a coercive environment that leads to capitulation from the United States or from the people of Taiwan, they win without having to fire a shot. And that comes straight out of the playbook of the art of war. Steve, I think, didn't you spend a year in Taiwan as a missionary? Two years back in the 1980s. So you have some sense of affection, and and I know you've been over there more recently. How concerned are you that just the sheer exhaustion of this kind of pressure that the people of Taiwan may decide, looking at the damage being done in Ukraine, that some kind of accommodation with Beijing is a better future than the risk of destruction? 
Well, I've always been concerned about that, especially since the advent of a leader in Taiwan who actively pursued a peace deal and an active accommodation with China. He served two terms and was replaced by the current president of Taiwan. And so there is a strain in Taiwan that has sought that kind of accommodation. It is a distinct minority now. And the blessing and the curse that the Taiwan people have is They've lived with this threat for so long, they don't feel it as intensely as people who are shocked by recent news coverage in the rest of the world. And they've gone about their everyday lives. They don't have a feeling of crisis. Now, that might be delusional. But on the other hand, what are they supposed to do? They've been put in a diplomatic and economic box to a degree by the rest of the world. And so they don't have the same perspective and sense that the rest of the world might in this regard. But on the other front, they are in the leading edge of cybersecurity and other kinds of technologies to try to endure. And the one thing I'd say from an historical perspective, the Japanese occupied Taiwan for 50 years and the Taiwanese came out with their identity intact. The KMT under Chiang Kai-shek imposed martial law for 25 years. The Taiwanese people came out with their identity intact. I don't give good odds for the CCP being able to control and occupy Taiwan for any enduring period of time. They're hard to people to govern and hold. But the problem is the cost going through that period. And I don't think they have a full sense of it. And our people are not prepared for that. And that's what gives me great concern. Do they, in their own historic memory, do they see themselves as being part of China or do they see themselves as an island people who are off the coast? Well, there's two broad forces that make them more in that latter category. One is, as I mentioned, the 50 years of Japanese occupation. They have at least as much Japanese American identity in them as they do Chinese. And because they are a full democracy and they have aboriginal tribes integrated into their legislature, presidential appointees and others, they have some, not a complete, but some sense, as we Americans do, of a country being defined by a common geography, common values and a common purpose, not ethnicity. And that makes them very, very different from China and very different, especially from the People's Republic of China and perhaps its most racist leader, Xi Jinping, who has put this form of racism into its very diplomacy, trying to target and recruit ethnically Chinese people in our country and our allies' countries to be more loyal to the motherland than they are to the country in which they're citizens. I take it that the Taiwan experience of Japanese occupation was dramatically better than the Korean response? 100%. 100%. Most of their key institutions from education to infrastructure to commerce were built during that era, and a lot of it endures to today. And it is seen as a far more positive foundation on which their democracy was built. Michael, if I can take us beyond the narrowly Chinese definition of this conversation, there's also been an effort which China has been part of to create an alternative to the dollar as an international currency. I think they just cut a deal with Brazil to do some trade that would be denominated in yuan rather than in dollars. How seriously do you take their capacity to be a currency competitor, if you will, with the American dollar as the world reserve currency? 
Yeah. So I testified to the House Financial Services Committee about this topic about three weeks ago. And the way that we discussed it was there's essentially three elements about being the world's reserve currency. Number one is what currency in which trade takes place. And so that's why China's wanting to get more of their trade to take place in Yuan so that you would then hold reserve, banks would then hold reserve currency to facilitate that trade. So part of that is the development of the payment system. The U.S. financial system is the most sophisticated broad base in the world. And so China's activities in the financial technology sector to try to displace the speed and cost of engaging in international trade is part of that strategy. The second is if I'm holding assets denominated a foreign currency against whose country do I want financial claims? And so that's why it's important to have the underlying fiscal strength of the country be strong. And this is where I focused my testimony to the House is that the more that we run massive budget deficits and in the process demonstrate an irresponsibility towards being the world's reserve currency, the more that we invite other nations to potentially try to displace us. But then the third thing is, is there an ability to freely transact in that currency? And this is where China is probably not a threat, is that as long as there are capital controls on outflows from China, it doesn't serve the purpose as a reserve currency. Because what you need to be able to do is have free flow of capital. A dollar-denominated asset, the benefit that it has is that it's a store of value between when there's an initial trade and when there's going to be a future trade. You need something that's going to store value in the interim. But if you can't ever get your money out of that country because of the capital controls, then it doesn't really well serve its purpose. And I think that Xi Jinping wants more control over his economy than he wants to be the world's reserve currency because he will not lighten those capital controls. It won't happen. Final thing on that is there's been discussion about moving to a commodity-backed currency to displace the dollar. The problem you have there is that you need to force conversion in times of conflict or times of strife. And so even if China said, fine, don't have RMB-backed securities, but have oil-backed securities that we will convert, if there were to be any kind of international conflict, I don't trust that the Chinese wouldn't suspend conversion. And if you cannot ensure conversion, then it's no good even having a commodity-backed currency. And so for those reasons, I don't see China as an immediate or even intermediate threat displacing the dollar. What is the net value to the American people of having the world's reserve currency, which I think for 100 years was the British pound, and then gradually after World War II, clearly shifted to be the dollar? What's the net advantage? Why is there something to pay attention to? Primary benefit is that it lowers our cost of capital. So to the extent that we are, for instance, running budget deficits, we are able to issue debt at interest rates that are lower than what we likely otherwise would have issued at. The fact that all these reserve banks are holding dollar-denominated assets means there's trillions of dollars in foreign banks that have to purchase treasuries in order to facilitate that trade. And so that built-in demand for our debt lowers interest rates relative to what they otherwise would have been. There are losers in the United States from it. So anybody looking to sell abroad, it means that our currency is higher valued and so it makes dollar denominated goods more expensive. So U.S. importers benefit from the dollar as the world's reserve currency, but U.S. exporters are made worse off from it. 
But overall, the primary benefit is lowering the interest rates at which both consumers and the government borrows at. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been juicy. The podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that's fascinating that came up at the American First Policy Institute report back in April, that ownership of U.S. agricultural land by the Chinese Communist and its affiliates has gone from 13,000 acres in 2010 to 352,000 acres in 2020. And I gather that has risen even further since then. And there are some indications that they have a particular fascination with farmland around American military bases. Is this a serious issue and should the U.S. government be intervening to stop it? It is a serious issue. It kind of is a litmus test for those that are capable of having an open mind of have the Chinese already declared a Cold War on us? Because during the Cold War, there's not a question of would any American sell their farmland to the Soviets? 
and would we have looked very carefully at where they were getting land should those transactions occur. But we do have kind of this instinctive notion built in now that, well, farmers should be able to sell to whoever they want. And I'm sympathetic to farmers wanting to feed the world and sell the family farm if they want to. At the same time, a lot of these farmers are patriots and they don't want the Communist Party to be their neighbor. This is something that has been very active in the states, that there are governors and state legislatures and not just Republicans. The California Assembly passed a bill that would have blocked all international ownership of agricultural land. It was vetoed by the governor. And that's not a state in which Republicans sadly have any influence. And so this is something that has taken hold. It's tangible. It's something that hits at a fundamental about what it means to be an American, the American farmer and land. And yes, they've picked conspicuously locations near missile silos or bases or communications posts to do this. And I think from the grassroots up, Americans are trying to rebuild a foundation for a different approach to China. I think that could be helpful to guide the institution you know very well, Mr. Speaker, in the House of Representatives, constant effort of herding cats. And then that institution has to struggle to rally that other institution, the Senate, which is not known for rapid policy action to actually represent the interests of the states. If the states move in a way to protect ag land and define kind of what the rules of the road are for ag land, that will be a major pressure point to, I think, move in a positive direction. But as you know, I mean, it's not really fair to ask the average everyday farmer to have any idea who he's doing business with. The Chinese LLCs and cutout corporations are a tricky bunch. I think that the government needs to do some serious things to help our citizens be responsible and work with them to know who they're doing business with. And along the way, I think, protect our strategic assets like land. The Biden administration has actually intervened on behalf of the Chinese communists against a state law that would block them. Yeah, there's a couple of angles that have come in against. And one of them is a completely fallacious notion that this is ethnic targeting and that they tie it to some kind of plotted surge in Asian hate. Now, that's a whole other podcast conversation about what groups are actually engaged in what attacks against others. But this issue about the Communist Party and ties to their intelligence services engaging in transactions and influence operations in the United States, that has nothing to do with ethnicity. That has to do with American national security. And it's something that I think Americans can understand and deal with. But the Biden administration very early on shut down the Department of Justice's China initiative on this basis of, I think, false charges of racism. And some of these court cases pushing back on the state laws did the same. We are working at AFPI with a number of different state legislatures to find other ways to define the tools and define the problem and hopefully insulate against these fallacious notions. I was very struck when Secretary Blinken went to China that Blinken had been the manager of the University of Pennsylvania Biden Center. And the University of Pennsylvania Biden Center got millions and millions of dollars from the University of Pennsylvania at a time when the university was, I believe, the largest recipient of Chinese communist money of any university in the United States. And of course, the University of Delaware has also magically gotten millions of dollars in money from communist China. And then it turns out 
that there are nine other Biden administration staffers in the White House who worked for the Penn-Biden Center. Now, isn't it a little weird to have a secretary of state who I believe was paid over a million dollars a year by a university being funded by the Chinese communist to now show up in Beijing? Doesn't it probably, to some extent, weaken his leverage, if I may put it that way? I'll talk quickly about the China angle of it. Mike lives in the university environment and knows this sort of area very, very well on what's going on with Chinese influence in universities, whether it's the money, the people, etc. But from a China point of view, especially under the Communist Party of China, 1,000%, if they have funded any part of your life, according to them, they own you and you owe your allegiance to them and they expect you to follow instructions. And so far, there's very little evidence that any of these very obedient children, in Chinese we'd say guai haizi, have strayed from this course. So everyone that took filthy lucre through undeniably a tremendously smelly kind of operation in an institute that was not known for generating mass quantities of public policy research and driving debate in key areas of reform in Pennsylvania, the United States, or international policy. This was a vanity institute. And it sure looks like a shell company in a lot of different ways. But I digress. But on the academic side, I wish the University of Pennsylvania were the only one that was susceptible to this kind of malign influence but sadly, it's just one of many. But Mike, you live in this world. Yeah, so I want to be careful. I've been a university professor since 2002, and I was a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania in 2017. They are an extraordinary institution. Some of my best friends are faculty there. It's striking to me that President Trump is an alum of the University of Pennsylvania, so I don't know the extent to which Vice President Biden was brought in as kind of a finger in the eye to President Trump upon taking office. There was a rumor that the president of the University of Pennsylvania had set herself up to be education secretary in a Clinton administration. So I think there are deep connections there. I am a former university administrator. I was an associate dean before I became assistant secretary. So it's not unusual to bring on high profile people with an understanding that their job is to raise money. The question is, why is the university raising so much money from China? Because as Steve said, people don't give money for free. They want things in return. So what is it that the Chinese thought that they were getting in return? And is it anything similar to what Burisma thought they were getting? Yeah, my hunch is that they're very different because I think in the Ukrainian tradition, as long as they had the name, they didn't really care. Whereas the Chinese want a bit more than a name. I think the Chinese tend to have a longer range planning process than the guys who are crooks at Burisma had. But anyway, that's another story. Listen, Mike and Steve, I really want to thank you for joining me. The work that's being done at the American First Policy Institute, I think, is really remarkable. It's an amazing team that has been assembled. And I want to thank you for helping all of us better understand Treasury Secretary Yellen's trip to China. Maybe when she has a few minutes, she can train the rest of us on how to kowtow in an appropriate way so that we can all build the right kind of psychological attitude towards our future Chinese masters. But in the meantime, I hope in the future, 
We can have both of you come back. You're experts on so many different areas, and I'd love to have both of you back in the future. Thank you for helping us today. Great privilege to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you to my guest, Michael Falkender and Steve Yates from America First Policy Institute. You can learn more about Secretary Treasury Yellen's visit to China on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.